Hi, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, home of NARC Troopers. It's the holiday season, end of 2021. We've got a lot of challenging things happening in the world right now that are very uh, stress-inducing. And even if we weren't recovering from some kind of narcissistic trauma, um, you know, it would still be really tough. Um, it would still be really tough. So when you add that extra thing on top of what is already a somewhat challenging situation, then I know a lot of people are feeling really overwhelmed. And then you add on top of it, it's a triple whammy. On top of that, you've got the holiday season. So you've got a world in chaos you have narcissistic trauma that causes PTSD and other terrible symptoms and dysregulations. And, um, and then on top of that, the holidays, that's like a recipe for, ugh. so I feel you and, um, you know, it, it will get easier. Um, hopefully the hard times that we're facing will pass. And, um, you know, by this time next year, we'll look back and say, ha, ha, well, whatever happens this Christmas can't be as bad as last year, meaning right now, right? So what do I want to do for you for um, the holidays? I don't want to talk about depression and anxiety and, and to give more thought to all the yucky stuff. Um, and I don't have like a sugar plum story to tell you because that's just not where I live these days, right? So, uh, I've got my own little weird story to tell you and the title of it, and it's just kind of a diversion. Let's look at it that way, that this is your holiday diversion. Take a break, step away from the kitchen or from the wrapping or from the festivities or whatever you're doing, or if you're alone and struggling with like sharing children or, um, or you don't have your family near you or that kind of thing, then just take a minute and let's have a little uh, story time. <laughs> Diversion is what I'll call it. The title is Sloppy Tacos, Vintage Cars, and Tuaka. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff behind that title. I'll just jump right in and I'm going to shock you here with something scandalous. And this is a true confession. Okay. I married, I married a disordered person with narcissistic personality disorder who was antisocial since his young puberty adolescence breaking into houses and knocking down mailboxes and stuff like stealing things from Target. Um, bisexual, yeah, had some sort of experiences in high school. Uh, godless, well, you know, all narcissists think that they're God, so how can they believe in a supreme God when it's them? Um psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. Just because you're a narcissist doesn't mean you have psychopathic tendencies. 
All psychopaths have narcissistic tendencies, but all narcissists aren't psychopaths. And I'm going to, I don't know this. I know that I married a person with narcissistic personality disorder. I know that. I'll put that on my life. Yes, it's a fact. On the psychopathic part, I'm guessing. I, I, I think so. I don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking that there's a little bit of that sprinkled in there. And, um, and he was a man whore. He was a man whore when I met him. He's a man whore again now. And, um, he, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's what he is. And this marriage lasted for 16 mind blowing years. Oh, did I mention that he was a chunk younger than me, which is, um, you know, I've never felt okay about that. I wish that that were not the case. It's not uh, like a, wow, look, I snagged a young husband that's really hot and has blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, was, I was never that person. It was sort of like, well, you know, we don't notice each other's ages. Yeah, that's how I tried to downplay that part. Because um, I certainly don't identify as a person who likes younger people. Um, my first husband was older than me. And the other significant relationship I had in my life, he was older than me. So this was the first younger. If you average them all together, I break even. <laughs> okay. Oh, I need some eggnog with some um, something in it. I'm going to get some in a minute, but let me tell you the story first. First of all, I, I, I want to ask, you know, what, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Everybody knows about patterns of abuse and dysfunction. Dr. Phil talks about it. Oprah talk's about it. Mainstream pop psych people talk about it all the time. Like what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Uh, patterns of abuse and dysfunction. You know, it's simple actually. You know, my father was absent and my mother was crazy. And so I married crazy twice. They say you marry your parents, and that's exactly what a lot of us do. I wed crazy people and stayed with them no matter what they did to me until they finally left me. Um, but instead of learning how to deal with my childhood trauma, wounding and all that clusterfuck of crazy, it only seemed to take hold with even greater uh, strength as I approached middle age. Um, my son had recently gone off to college. My daughter was going to be finishing high school in a couple of years. For a person as codependent and boundaryless as myself, it was a harrowing prospect, you know, to have an empty nest. So there's a cautionary warning to what I'm getting ready to tell you, along with some insights that I gleaned along the way. And like all of my podcasts, there's sort of a message. What is the message for the day? What is the message from what I'm sharing with you? So I'm sharing this personal story that's crazy and scandalous uh, in hopes that you can take away from it some of the lessons that I learned the hard way by making these choices and doing these things uh, so that it'll help you understand your situation a little bit better. And at the end, shake your head and say, wow, at least I am not quite as far gone as her. 
So it all started with sloppy tacos. My name was hard to pronounce because my dad was Thai from Thailand. And it was like one of those long names with like 20 or 30 different letters in it. None of them made sense. So I heard various iterations over time when people tried to pronounce it. They would look at it and, and make an effort. Um, and, you know, I taught junior and senior English all my life. And I was a college professor for nearly 10 years. And all of these, like, older students would always try to say my name. And they would sometimes get close and sometimes not so close. Um, Mrs. Snuffleupagus, Ms. Stop It No-No, Ms. Spaghetti Undone, and my least favorite, courtesy of my 11th grade AP Lit class, Ms. Sloppy Taco. Now, something about the way that the boys giggled and the girls looked disgusted made me think that when they said that, it must be something nasty. I decided right then and there that all males from the age of 12 to 70 were probably at least had some kind of tendency to be weirdos and probably a large percentage of them were perverse degenerates. <laughs> that was my conclusion because it was always the guys that said something vulgar and then they giggled about it, kind of like potty humor, but when they do a uh, drink a Coke and make a long belching noise or a burp or a fart or something like that. You know, typically females don't do that. I'm going to just go out there on a limb and say that. Well, anyway, I guess I hoped that this enigmatic force of nature in my life would, would empathize and give me some hope, um, you know, that I was wrong about all of this name calling and so I thought it was just silly adolescent humor. No way, you know, not really, really a hallmark quality of all men. I don't stereotype with such broad brushstrokes. It did cross my mind, like I said, like, wow, what a bunch of weirdos. But, you know, I re you don't expect the person that you have chosen to live your life with, your life partner, your your person you married and took vows with, you don't expect them to be one of the nasty boys. And I remember the first time I shared this with him, we weren't even married yet. And, you know, he was young, um, really young, like so young. It was like his prefrontal cortex wasn't even fully finished growing yet. Um, and so, of course, you know, the impulse control and the judgment and all the, you know, any modicum of sanity probably wasn't there. Um, and his response was a classic smirk, the smirk that I would come to loathe. And it was the first time I realized that he was a dirty birdie, just like some of those others. And that was strike one. Strike one. Okay. So now let's go to number two. This is strike two. <laughs> there were the vintage cars. I hated them. They smelled funny, were unnecessarily cavernous, and had these big, ugly, skinny steering wheels. And so my future husband had one of these behemoths, 
a yellow Lincoln with stereo sound provided by a jam box in the back seat that sported these dual cassette player kind of things. Oddly, there was no key for this car. All you had to do was grab the ignition and just kind of turn it with your bare hands and, and it started and off you went. You didn't even need a key. Oh my gosh, I was in hell just thinking about it. I wouldn't be caught dead riding around in a car like that. And typically, I'm not the kind of person that really cares what kind of car you drive. You know, you might not even, I dated a guy once who didn't even have a car. He rode a bicycle everywhere he went. Um, and he turned out to be one of the nicest people I ever knew. Uh, well, eventually he got a gremlin. I'm sure most of you have no idea what that is. It's like not just the Christmas movie. Gremlin was a kind of car back in the, I don't know, 70s, 80s. Like a, it was like a, um, it was a little ugly car. <laughs> okay, so typically I didn't care about cars. But this one, for some reason, I just hated it so much and I couldn't explain why. Um, you know, so I just knew I hated it with a purple passion and I just didn't want any part of it. I called it his pimp car, you know, and I think pimps come in a multitude of colors, right? They could be anything. And so this derogatory comment, you know, really wasn't born out of the idea that they all possess some common mindset, you know, like, well, it wasn't an ethnic thing. When I said it was a pimp car, it was implying that he had bad taste and that it was vulgar taste and trashy taste. Um, this unfortunate car embodied all the unsavory qualities so much that my neighbors called the police whenever this yellow beast was parked on our street to report suspicious activity. That's how out of place it was. That's how ugly it was. It got a 911 call from the neighbors. It was suspicious. Yeah, who would drive something like that? So strike two, strike two. All right, so here's strike three. There were a lot of parties and wild escapades at clubs and parks and strangers' houses, and this all happened with my ex when, he, you know, back at the beginning, like 20 years ago. And I never went. I wasn't invited. It was something that he went to. But I heard about him and I saw pictures and um, tales from the dark side about the countless girls that just threw themselves at him and their fierce competition to get his, his favor. When you add drugs and alcohol and a bunch of college-aged wild ones, you know, it quickly becomes an epic kind of thing. Um, as he became legend for dancing naked and having a harem and engaging, engaging in like hedonistic rituals and stuff, we remained just friends during this period, friends with no benefits. And for about eight months, this went on, that he was just like some super party guy with quite a reputation. Anyway, we kept our distance physically, and I'm not sure what it was about him that was so um, intoxicating for me, knowing that he was kind of slimy and creepy and gross in that ethic and moral department of being a decent person. 
Yeah. Um, but I did talk to him and he somehow managed to violate every single sacred thing about me. Starting with that, uh, I still can't explain it. Uh, we talked about all of these debaucheries along with other subjects like politics and art and movies and all that. It was confusing to figure out what interests, you know, that we had in each other. Because what is this? You know, there's like a chunk of years between us. And I'm a college professor. He's a college student. Um, and, you know, it's not a good thing. So clearly I was being tested and y'all know this, those of you who have been, um, you know, captured by a narcissist and all that, I was being tested and my boundaries were being consistently blurred. Um, and that's how it happened very slowly over those like eight months that I would hear little bits and pieces of how awful he was but at the same time he seemed uh like all this other you know things that um were unusual and um curious interesting um refreshing unlike anything or anyone i had met before peculiar uh odd eccentric you know i kind of like that um so it all came to a head on one particular occasion when I got the one phone call that you get from jail and I was the chosen one to get that phone call. He had been arrested in his stupid car with a, a bottle of Tuaka himself, three sheets to the wind. And I remember going to retrieve him at the police station and noticing the stench on him when I picked him up. It smelled like sweat and urine and vomit and smoke and all the fetid aromas of a bacchanalia come, you know, like paired with the, with the drunk tank that he had spent the night in. Red flags were blowing in the wind every few feet. And these red flags were saying, abort the mission, escape. This is not a healthy friendship. This isn't even a friendship. What is this? Run. This is dirty and wrong and crazy and out of control. You are being groomed for something diabolical. Run. Save yourself. This is dangerous. You know, those messages, you know we all heard them. Think back to the beginning. There were things they said. There were things that they did, these narcissists. There were things they showed you. They tested you. They pushed your limits. They shocked you. They surprised you. They dazzled you with all of this just um, um, boundary uh, crossing. And um, it was just, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's like, it's like, um, you know, it's like, how about this? Junkies never listen to reason, right? And like, you know, they don't choose to be like heroin addicts. They don't choose to die in front of their children or to neglect their children or abandon their children because of their drug habit. They, you know, they, that drug hijacks them 
right? That's what being an addict is. The drug is more powerful than life, is more powerful than anything. And isn't that what happened to all of us who were in these relationships with the narcissist? They were the heroine. They were the heroine. And we got hijacked. And we knew it was heroin. <laughs> we knew it because there were signs, there was there were flags, there were warnings. We knew it, but we just could not stop ourselves. I was already addicted and drunk on his cult-like mind control. And so I just looked the other way, closed my eyes and refused to see those red flags. Strike three, strike three, come into the drunk tank. So I want to talk about that. There's three strikes. You know what, what we just talked about, um, the sloppy taco thing. I know he's vulgar and nasty and has no principles or um, ethics when it comes to um, morality or fidelity or anything like that. I know that at this point that he's a nasty, vulgar guy, that he's just dirty, that he's, that he's a man whore. Okay, that should be strike one. I should have, good grief, who would want that? I should have run screaming like I was on fire out of the building. Strike one, I ignored it. The car thing? <laughs> now, okay, that's not quite so bad, but it did speak volumes about who he was that he would choose something so ostentatious to push people's buttons and get a reaction and um, all of that kind of thing. Um, and so that should have signaled something. And then the whole calling from jail. My gosh, what was I thinking? You know, I, I could have had tenure in another year or so where I was teaching and was well-respected and well-liked by my students, and I had my career, I had children, I had a life, and here I am doing this, doing these crazy things with, and okay, so, oh my gosh, um, with the three strikes, he was not out, he was not out. There was a point soon after this whole jail episode that I felt, I felt a kind of surrender, our brains synced up with one another and we became one mind, one hive, a communal brain. It was as if I knew that he had captured his prey and I was the prey and I knew it and I surrendered and submitted and I let him inject me with poison. I just gave up and just took it and um, so kind of like a gazelle who, you know, that has been chased and overcome by the lion. He drags the prey to the ground and just tears its throat out. It doesn't even feel much pain because it's in shock. You know, that happens that way. You don't even know you've been stabbed or shot. You don't really feel pain because you're in shock. You're bleeding out. You're getting cold and you're dying but you don't really feel a lot of pain because you're in shock. It's like a natural uh, response to, to trauma and things like that. 
So, uh, you know, it, the animal just lies there and watches the lion feast on its flesh, helpless to save itself or escape. You know, it's being eaten alive. And it's, it's just got this dumb and bewildered look on its face, resigned to its fate. <laughs> that was me. Three months later, after the whole jail episode, he moved into my house. And you know what happened next. You know what happened next. It, you know, it had been almost a year that, that this weirdness had been going on. What was wrong with me? Why would I do that? I should have been committed. I should have terminated something so utterly insane. But what did I do next? I married him. I married him. And here is the reality of the situation and my best, best explanation of why it went down like that in 10 easy steps. Okay, so here's the 10 easy steps as part of this explanation for this story. And the question comes back to what was wrong with me? How could I do something like that? Well, number one, I suffered from a dependent personality disorder, a cluster C condition on the DSM chart of mental health conditions. I had that. Number two, I also had an unhealthy attachment style. Number three, I also had abandonment issues that just consumed me. Number four, I had toxic scripting and faulty programming caused by destructive childhood. And these programs were um, just running, running me because that's how that works. Uh, number five, I'm going to go with generational curses. And I think they're real. I think we get trauma from our parents. Good grief, my mother, the trauma that woman had. <laughs> of course she passed it on to me. And unknowingly, it wasn't a willful choice, a cognizant choice to do that. It's just what happened. So yeah, there was that. Number seven, I believe he co-opted my brain and synced it to his. And there's proof about this scientific research that proves that's not crazy. That really happens. Number eight, he used energy and wizardry to seduce me. <laughs> yes. It was not just of this earth. It was something metaphysical, something supernatural, something energy, vibrational, hoodoo, voodoo, weirdness. Yeah, really was for sure. Number nine, I was isolated. He isolated me. I had no tribe. I was separated from the herd. You know how that goes. You pick the weak ones off. You know, the old ones, the young ones, the dumb ones, and then you eat them. And then the rest of the herd moves on. And so he picked me off from the herd, isolated me so that I had no defenders, no tribe. And then I was eaten alive. And then number 10, the, the, the one that's the no brainer that we hate to talk about or admit, but it's true. I was addicted early even when we were just friends before any hanky panky happened for like a whole year, almost I became addicted. Uh, it was like a, um, a heavy dose of dopamine and like 
all these different hormones flooding my brain. And then he would test me and do these weird, horrible things. And then it would be another hit of the chemicals from my brain. And it was just, you know, it was grooming. It was securing me in place as, as a good um, source of fuel. So what do you do when you figure out that what is at the root of the problem and become self-aware, which I, I feel that I am self-aware of exactly why I fell for this and, and could not walk away. You know, when you realize that you were more of a volunteer than a victim because of unresolved things from your past that made you more susceptible to the predator, that's when, you know, you're onto something. First, you have to forgive yourself. You know, it wasn't your fault. You didn't choose to be eaten alive or brainwashed by a cult-like uh, psychosis that's the narcissist reality. You were recruited. You were groomed. You were seduced. You were snapshotted, idealized, objectified, hypnotized, addicted, trauma-bonded, co-opted, hijacked, devalued, humiliated, disrespected, vilified, deconstructed, blamed, soul-raped, dehumanized, smeared, hated, discarded, jettisoned, and destroyed. That's what happened to you. All those things. You did your best. You know, that's all we can do. But now that you know, now that you have survived the cruelty and contempt, the irrational and the nonsensical, the shock and the horror, you have to accept what has happened and you have to let them go. And, and so how do you do that? How do you let someone go that has synced up with your brain and hijacked you and brainwashed you and you've got Stockholm syndrome or something like that. Well, first of all, um, you have to break the shared fantasy bubble and fall back to the real hard ground and of earth. You have to get away, stay away and go no contact. And so that's step one. The narcissist is your heroine. Treat them as an addiction that will kill you. The narcissist is a predator. Treat them as a beast that will kill you. The narcissist is a murderer of your identity, integrity, mind, body, and soul. They rape you slowly and bleed you gently so you don't even notice that you've been moral, mortally wounded until you gasp that last breath. It's subtle. It's not an assault. It's like um, you don't even know what's happening to you, and then it's over. You know, if you want to live, they must die. If you want to live, they must die, and... So look at what they are and understand it deeply enough to know that you will die if you don't stay away. Every relationship with loved ones will die. Life as you know it will die. You cannot allow that to happen. You can't allow that to happen. You have to break free 
mourn and grieve over the thing that never was and then begin to rebuild yourself from the ground up. You know, it may take a while. It may be painful. It may be a long time until you can let hope and joy flow back into you. But it can be done and you have to do it because if you don't just murder them, that means just pronounce them dead, push them away, pretend that they are deceased, erase them and like make them non-existent to you. I'm, I'm speaking I'm metaphorically, not to physically go do something to them, but you have to believe that they no longer exist and leave them alone and keep your distance because they're dangerous. Even if they're just the sweetest thing and they don't seem dangerous, oh my gosh, they are going to effing kill you in every way possible. So you have to get away. You know, the things that made you stay, the things that are not healthy in you, these things can be changed and healed and repaired and reinvented. There is nothing wrong with you that that you can, you know, there's really nothing wrong with you. You can change and and these whatever is wrong that you find, like you think that there is something, then it can be fixed. It can be healed. It can be remedied. The narcissist can never be more than a predator with an insatiable hunger for fuel. He will never change. He will never know love, never feel empathy or mercy, never experience regret or remorse, never be whole or real. They died a long, long time ago, and now they are something else without a core, without heart, and without soul. They are the living dead, you know? So you just grieve them, bury them, forget them. Let them be dead to you because it is your only chance to move on and get your life back. It is your only chance to reestablish relationships with the people in your life who matter to you. There just isn't any other way. So that's my story for you to get your mind off of holiday madness. Uh, the story of the three strikes, the sloppy tacos, the vintage cars, and the Tuaka drunk tank. And you know what? Each one of those should have been enough to say, oh, this is not a good thing. What am I doing? I'm not going to do this. But you end up in it before you know it. And then you're stuck and you can't extricate yourself. You're like a bug that has flown into a spider web and you have been wrapped in silk and it feels all good and yummy, like, you know, high uh, count thread, high, high thread count sheets in a fancy hotel. It's like that, you know, the high thread counts are like really soft and yummy and feel so good, but you're being wrapped so that you can be uh, fed fed upon, you know, and sucked dry. And um, yeah, it's not a good thing. It may feel good at first. You may think that this is cozy, but they are preparing to eat you. And then like, you know, what, 
what do some bugs do? They eat and then they throw it back up or what? I mean, it's the whole thing's gross. You don't want any part of this. You don't want to be eaten. You don't want to be regurgitated. You don't want to be wrapped in spider silk. You don't want to be captured in a web. You don't want any of these things. But yet you find yourself trapped, stuck, immobilized, paralyzed. They've injected you with venom. You can't move. You can't, you can't, you can't move. You're like paralyzed. And, and I'm just telling you guys, I don't know what stage you're in, but we've all seen the red flags and we stayed. They've all done crazy boundary violating things and we stayed. They've betrayed us. They have, um, you know, disrespected us and we stayed. And so now what I'm, the, the message for my story today is that at some point it comes down to be a matter of survival. And if you want to be okay, you really have to just stop having anything to do with them and just let them go and accept what they are. Can't help them. Can't change them. And they're deadly. They're deadly to you. They're deadly to your, to your soul and your spirit, to your faith, to your religion. They are deadly to your body because you store trauma and abuse in the body and it will make you sick. It will kill you physically and make you sick. They are poison and deadly to you emotionally, causing you anxiety and fear and pain and suffering and uh, just all of these distraught, horrible feelings that are out of control. They will cause you to lose your mind because they take your brain and, the, and your brain gets to be like scrambled brains and dysregulated and having all of these bad chemicals in it. And it's terrible. And they will murder uh, what's left, spirit, body, um, emotions, you know, your mind, every part of you, every part of you, they're going to murder it. They're going to ravage it. And, and then they're going to move on to the next one. And they're going to tell themselves, they're the good guys. They're the good guys. You are the nut. You are the problem. It's all your fault. You did all these things wrong. You failed them. And they believe that. They really believe their own, own stuff. So that's my message. That <laughs> I'm sure you've got your stories that don't have anything to do with um, sloppy tacos or tuaka or, or, or vintage cars. But you do have, you know what's going on. If you're still in it, you know, you know got to get out. And if you, if you are out and you're just trying to recover, then hang in there. You know, I can say with some degree of certitude, it does get easier, takes a long time, longer than you're going to want to take to, to get them cleansed out of your system and washed out of your blood and your body and like purify yourself from being corrupted and tainted by something so dark and insidious. Yeah, it's going to take a little while, 
but you can do it. They can't, you can. And I want you to think about that this holiday season. This opportunity to be free and to get clean and to have purity and decency and morals and ethics and conscience and 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 wonderful guilt is a you know we should feel guilty when we do bad things or hurt people and that's what makes us human and to have that we should celebrate it and and be like yes i i am feeling really bad about what i did and that's a good thing it's a good thing to feel bad about the bad things you do and just reclaim all those wonderful parts of your humanity because when you're with them you're living in in a in a bubble of fantasy and psychotic delusion with a person who is not in touch with reality you get that right that's where you live when you're with them you got to come back to earth this awful stinky messy ugly horribly chaotic and troubled earth that's where you live not in some imaginary bubble you've been anesthetized you've been drugged it's not real you need to come back and look at and i know right now who wants to see what's going on in the world it's not great but it's real and sometimes imaginary and fantasy feels better more intense, more colorful, more fun than reality. But you got to remember, it's going to kill you. That's the price you pay to have all that color and bliss. It's going to kill you, just like heroin. All that blissful, wonderful feeling you injected, and I don't know what it feels like. I've never injected heroin, but I imagine it is a powerful and pleasurable experience that people just are willing to die for they have to have it and um this is just like that so own your story acknowledge the reality of the situation and choose life guys that's the best gift you can give yourself and your loved ones is to choose life Maybe it's going to be a hard life, a difficult life, at least for a while, painful life, but it's real. It's real. And what they are and where they live is in some other parallel universe that's not real. It's not real. It's like virtual reality. Yeah. You know, I put on one of those helmets and I painted with my hands in virtual reality and I was making flowers come out of my fingers and it was the coolest thing ever. I wanted to just keep doing it for hours. It was just such a wild and, and, and um, unusual sensation to have that happen. And that's kind of what it's like being with the person with NPD. Um, it's like you're in a place where everything is like that. You need to take off the virtual reality headgear. Take it off. Stop with the flowers and the colors shooting out of your fingers. Just stop. Look around you. Look where you stand. Look what's in the room. Place yourself there. Have a mindfulness moment. And 
and just appreciate the fact that that reality is something that you're capable of holding on to and experiencing in a way that your narcissist can never. They're trapped in VR world forever in so many ways. It's like going into that alternate reality and staying there forever, forever and ever. So welcome back troopers to the real world. And, um, you know, we got to gear up, be troopers, be soldiers, be warriors, get through the muck and the mire, but it is real. And there's something just so glorious about that of such value that we should have gratitude for, even if it's hard. All right. Happy holidays, everyone. Please stay safe. The, the uh, virus, you know, we've talked about how the narcissist is like the virus, but you know, cause they both kill you sometimes. And, um, they're both really, you know, insidious and tricky. So, um, you know, try to be careful and uh, stay away from crowds and take precautions and, and, and try to be okay. And uh, I'm wishing you the best, much love, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.